0: Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face.
1: Chris,
2: it's good to see you again, my friend, and we welcome to the show Michael Garfield, podcaster extraordinaire, not to geek out too much on microphone stuff uh, while we're talking, but uh, he is a podcaster extraordinaire and works at an interesting center, right? You, you, um, you work for a center that studies complex systems.
1: Right, at the Santa Fe Institute, where I, I do science communication, I work on the social media and the podcast I started there, Complexity Podcast, uh, as well as hosting my own Future Fossils Podcast. But I mean, this is this is just the focal point through which I get to focus my work um, as a dot connector for people, and mm-hmm. and someone who can. I'd like you think about it like in, in uh, electrical engineering terms, like somebody who can uh, step down a a really heady, uh, it's, it's like impotence matching. I'd like to use a, a Jeffrey West term. It's, I, it's you know, I like that. He thinks we'll understand
3: an, an engineering analogy. Scott, I think you just paid us a right, compliment. Exactly.
1: <laughs> well, I'm just going to throw, I'm going to throw her. out analogies and, and hope that
3: um, we'll desperately grab at some of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Can you, can you just, uh, you know, it's kind of the question I've always been embarrassed to ask you, Michael, to to just say a bit about the Santa Fe Institute. It's kind of one of those rarefied institutions in the, you know intellectual sphere that that you're supposed to know of and it's kind of it reveals how little you know about the world to ask what it is and so I've never asked you but can I just be honest and vulnerable now and and ask you to tell me a bit about about the institute sure
1: uh it's a place where I'm very lucky to be on the staff um it's important to distinguish that from from being on the research faculty uh the SFI is a a world hub a, you know a, 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 like the place where uh, complex systems science as it is currently practiced was was largely pioneered and it's it's out here in the high deserts of new mexico it was founded in 1984 uh, by a small group uh, an overlapping venn diagram of nobel prize winning physicists and los alamos researchers Um, they wanted a place that they could work on fundamental theory rather than science beholden to commercial or national defense interests. And so, uh, you know, the, the main thing about, uh, complex systems research is that it's, it's about understanding the world in terms of, um, well, how we can't understand everything by pulling it apart and reducing it to its elementary components. Mm. Um, you know, like that, there are things that you will only understand about a fish while it's alive. You know, you think about like those deep sea fish we try to dredge up from the bottom of the ocean and and study in the laboratory, and pulling them out of uh, a thousand atmospheric pressures or whatever kills them. Um, everything is, it's it's about context. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it's it's a it's you know, I I think of it kind of as the postmodern turn applied to scientific discovery where, you know, we're no longer, um, you know, I mean, actually in the early days of SFI, there was, there was still kind of a, a bender, uh, a, you know, a, a, uh, Don Quixote type tilting at the windmill of a, 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 general unified theory of everything, you know, one, one equation that could explain the cosmos. But, um, as complexity science has matured, the, Emphasis has shifted in our in our humbling and our understanding that there are, for example, um, things that we can only learn about a system by simulating it in a computer that can't be reduced to an equation. You have to run run the simulation and then modify the variables of that simulation and run it again. And so it's it's um, for anyone familiar with like forecasting or scenario planning. You no, know, that's that's related to this, um, this understanding that that strategy is contextual and that uh the functional relationships between things depend on the uh the constraints of an environment that's organized at like multiple different levels of order and operating on multiple different timescales. So yeah,
2: yeah, you you say something in this piece you wrote a medium about how w- we will fight Disease, disease of our networks, by realizing we are networks. You have this great paragraph. I just want to read in in total because I think I loved it. You say we're in a world where what the poet John Keats calls called negative capability is king. The skill of not congealing on an answer prematurely, the capacity to hedge one's mental bets and keep one's models open, fluid, and provisional. This looks a lot like having a diverse gut microbiome that can handle a wide variety of foods. Or how a virus like SARS-CoV-2 is less a fixed point in the genotyp- type, genotypic space than a loose cloud of possibilities evolvable enough to pivot to new hosts as they're offered. It's why hyperconnected connected bank loan networks are vulnerable to, to cascading failures, but an archip- archipelago can breed and harbor innovations that repopulate the mainland after mass extinctions." It's why investors call for a diverse portfolio of assets and high beta strategies are suited for a moment of extraordinary volatility. It's why food webs that don't depend entirely on one key species fare much better through catastrophe. It's why sometimes stalemates lead to better answers than a fast agreement. Hmm. I, I thought that was so inc- incredibly well written. And then you kinda you get you get into like sort of it seems like you're arguing kind of that um corona kind of it, it seems that the coronavirus exposes the simple um, kind of systems that don't, that that are very fragile and, and not resilient and highlights other ones that, that, that are more resilient. And so you're thinking that, Hey, it's only, we're, we're only going to deal with a pandemic when we realize that we, it's part of this is i not congealing on an answer prematurely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for the kind of words about that. Yeah. I think, you know, I, and Chris, you and I have spoken about this at some length, um, before this call that one of the things that I think has been revealed through this is, you know, if you think of the flows of, of materials and energy uh, through a, an ecosystem or through an economy, which I, I think are kind of like loosely synonymous uh, for our purposes, that uh, former SFI president and, and now distinguished professor Jeffrey West, whose uh, book scale uh, has, has, gotten a lot of traction over the last few years you know describing the 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 scaling laws that govern the uh, growth and evolution of cities and organisms and uh corporations and so on that you know he talks about one of the characteristics of one of the one of the the fundamental things that we can say about physical systems of any kind is that they uh they're lazy there's a, a principle of least effort or least action and so what that means in in practice is that if it rains on a mountain that the gravity pulls the water down uh basically all available pathways like water will not run uphill but it will run every way it it can find downhill and um and because it's the because of the principle of least effort um it does not run in a straight line. So contrary to our sort of uh, you know folk truism here, the the straight line that you know the the straight line is not the quickest path between two points. At least when it comes to system, real physical systems, not like idealized Euclidean geometries, but actual real world systems where there's friction, because the friction is what makes the river bend. You know, so like all of these these snaking pathways that we see in the growth of, of trees or cardiovascular systems, so on, are a way of harnessing uh, turbulence and, like, uh, vortical processes to reduce friction and to, to uh, optimize for, like, a, a the flow rate. And so what this means with respect to uh, coronavirus is that these systems all look the same like they, that branching you know there's that sort of mind-blowing moment where you realize that that you know your nervous system looks like the the um, webs of plasma connecting galaxies you know and the what's what's going on there is that the uh the shape of a lightning bolt is a, a map of all of the paths of you know the possible paths of like least effort that the electron takes to get from one place to another or like electrons in that in that current um now what we've done in our systems over the last few years uh, decades is is uh, optimize them for efficiency rather than uh, so we're looking at one timescale and on that that one timescale um we can kind of you know we can sort of, we've taken a lot of things that are uh, kind of inefficient, if you think about like childcare, you know, outsourcing childcare, for example, (laughs) and paying someone else to raise your kids is uh, all well and good, as long as you're in a system that's stable enough to do that. But like, when, you know, every once in a while, there's a rare event that disrupts that system, and uh, suddenly, it's no longer efficient to have your food grown a thousand miles away or whatever. And so, you know, this, this is, uh, this is about us realizing that for, I guess to like bring it to try and close this complicated analogy. um, It's like if you had your aorta and your major arteries of your body, and then they just went directly into capillaries with no like branching vein structure and, you know, like arterial structure. Like if, you know, we, we need that, we need multiple different points at which the system branches in order to keep the friction down and in order to balance the, um, the sort of short term and long term efficiencies here. And I think that that's become really clear when the the middle layer. Between the individual and like the state and the market has been disrupted. This you know the so-called civil society, where we have you know our our neighborhood communities, our families, our Local shops. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, s- s- sports clubs. All of that has guild, kind of been hollowed away adiant. by
3: the forces of efficiency and optimization and scale. Right. Um. And and kind of you know co-opted by the macro level and then suddenly when you know that that fine tuned environment in which the the macro can deliver all of that stuff to the individual level when that environment is disrupted suddenly we realize that okay this is this is fit for no purpose now and there that 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 kind of community layer that we would look to to kind of mediate those big global forces it's just non-existent yeah, it's,
2: it's interesting michael I, I had i do this long form interview podcast with give and take where i actually first met chris as a guest and i had a guy on i don't know it was it was, it was a while back um in 2018 his name whose name is uh, brian vandemark and he wrote this massive history of vietnam called the road to disaster the guy knew rackNamara had decades of his own archival research i mean it's an amazing historian he teaches at the naval academy but part of his um thesis in the book, it was, he spends like the first 150 pages looking at what social science has talked, told us about decision making. And basically, he just his his lens historically is like looking at um, these cataclysmic decisions um, that Kennedy and Johnson, the Kennedy and Johnson administrations made um, through the prism of like research in cognitive science and psychology and organ, organizational theory to explain why the quote unquote best and the brightest got trapped in Situations that suffocated creative thinking and willingness to dissent, and they and 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 you know we're talking about why change is so hard and why they were so blind to their errors. And one of the things that's so interesting because he teaches midshipmen at the Naval Academy because he's thinking, look, some of these people I'm teaching are going to be making the big defense decisions someday. And he talks so much about the the the, the need emotionally to be able to stop and not double down mm. on your on what's not working. And it, this is why I, I hear you saying about complexity. And systems that are complex and encourage not doubling down, just by the nature of the way the gravitational pull works, right? And it, it gets a lot of different lenses. But they were, it's just he's just like it, Vietnam was this strange thing where we, we didn't well, lose many battles, we just lost the war because we couldn't think outside of the uh, the boxes we were in, and just you know totally um, decimated you know thousands of lives uh, for for kind of nothing.
3: <laughs> yeah, there's Vietnam. You know, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna just add on that. I mean, there's definitely and i imagine this must be something that um you you think about a lot as you you know in your you know part of your kind of formal role of so how can i how can i help to connect and articulate the kind of the complexity thinking that is happening inside sfi and and connect it to a wider world and and the challenges that people are dealing with and it, and it seems to me that this is kind of the the the, the crux of it that you know when we study systems and how they behave we see that you know the organic models are the best models and mechanistic models are you know are always very kind of poor substitutes and yet so much of how we just seem to even run our own lives is is much more mechanistic and i don't know if it's just this is kind of just the last few hundred years of of every every tool that we've developed for ourselves we tend to think in straight lines Right. We, I mean, we, we, we depend upon the the kind of clarity of a straight line to understand, you know, um, whose permission do I need to seek if I want to make a decision? Right. Um, you know, what what is the what is the the right next step to take to get from where I am now to some kind of decision that that I or the auditor above me will evaluate as the right decision or a good decision that there there are, there are these, you know, we we are a prisoner to these straight lines, you know, the, these tools and and processes and trainings that help us go about our lives. And, and I think there, there, there's just an infinity of examples. So, so just to summarize, you know, what I take away from, from all of that, Michael is, it just seems that we live in this tension between what you know what the study of complex systems tells us is sort of how things work and how we choose to simplify that complexity into straight lines that i guess we can grasp and we can work with and i think there is this kind of question and i suppose there are you know we live in this there are so many wondrous experiments underway of, of, of demonstrating that there are you know ways of kind of hanging in ambiguity productively, but I think it's so alien to most people that it's just hard to imagine. And so and so crisis comes right, environment totally shocks. And just like in biology, you know, we've got we are very fragile population. You know, optimized. We've been selecting to become more and more efficient, bigger and b- bigger scale. Environmental shock suddenly we're we're, we're maladapted to our environment and we we suffer a kind of collapse because there just isn't this kind of you know mutation force at work to keep a sort of healthy diversity in in our systems for doing things do you you grapple with this kind of fundamental tension
1: yeah i mean there's another way of framing this which i find really helpful um to everything you just said you know it's about the level of resolution or granularity at which we're trying to address the problem. Um, To go back to, you know, the, the idea of like fractal branching networks for a moment, there's a, there's a famous uh, story that Jeff West tells in that book scale about the coastline of Britain and how, if you use a different measuring stick, use measuring sticks of two different lengths, then you're going to get two different answers because and this is the whole the whole idea of of uh, what you know what fractals are is that you know if your if you're me- if your measuring stick is a meter long, then your answer of the how long is the coastline of you know any given uh, surface is going to be significantly smaller than if your your uh, measuring stick is a centimeter long, but mm. that smaller mm. measuring stick. That means you're taking a hundred times more measurements also, mm. right? And you're actually, you know, and, and so the uh, SFI postdoc David Kinney has looked at this in terms of, you know, why we have different fields of science in the first place. And it's because, uh, you know, they all seem to apply to different scales. And we've sort of moved beyond mm. thinking about physics as the level at which things are actually happening. And then everything else is just sort of, stacked on that and emergent from that there's there's a a seminal paper uh more is different from 1972 um this is a a phil anderson paper where he says that basically like a change you know a, a significant change in quantity results in a change in quality so that the um there is something genuinely different going on in in chemistry than there is in physics and genuinely different in biology than there is in, in chemistry. And so when you, when you look at it from, uh, David Kinney's point of view, his, his work has been on uh, formal epistemology, you know, which is the, the, the branch of philosophy of like how we know what we know. And he's uh,
3: it's he, easy. Just ask Scott. He, he'll tell <laughs> he's, he's, <laughs> his, his,
1: his, uh, points, which we, we talk about in, uh, in the complexity podcast episode 19 uh, are about how um, the cost of using a one centimeter ruler means that uh, the cost is too great for questions that only require uh, a meter ruler. Right. And so there's an, there's an economy involved in this, which is like how, how, closely do you have to examine the thing in order to answer the question you know uh you know good enough in in uh horseshoes and hand grenades and and government work right um because you're looking at things at the the national level rather than at the neighborhood level um but when there's a you know when when the problem exists at the neighborhood level and this is to your point scott about vietnam um the reason that the military tactics that we brought into vietnam didn't work is i mean is uh, because of guerrilla warfare it's because of context it's because we were applying a global strategy to a, a situation that required a very context specific uh, approach you know it, it it meant fighting in this particular landscape and we ignored that to our peril, and you know something like that is going on um, everywhere we see a crisis right now whereas like the the tools that we are applying to w- these so-called wicked problems are tools that were uh, invented to address problems at a different level of granularity and so the tension that you're speaking to, Chris is a tension between. Uh, Again, like the short and long term investments required, you know, like if if we are um, if we're trying to make the most expedient decision now, the most expedient decision now might be to rely entirely on the convenience store down the street for my food. But over the long term, um, we know that sooner or later there is a a a. There's a, an infrequent event in which the global food chain, uh, you know, the, the supply chains are disrupted. And if I don't want to starve to death, then I should be thinking about not only, you know, shopping for this week, but building into the system uh, the resilience, uh, you know, f- food, food security for much larger timescales than that. You know, and, and that means the, you know, that means stepping in some in some respects it looks like stepping um, down off of a peak like an optimum of efficiency but um, when you are making the you know when you're re- engaging with the actual complexity of your situation as as this pandemic has forced us to do then it's clear that the um, that our equations or our models of this system, were insufficiently simple, that the ruler was too long, you know, and that, that we need to look at things a little bit more granularly, which in this case actually means looking at, it's kind of a, an awkward, it's like an inversion. We're actually, we need to like step back and look at the bigger picture and see all of the things, all of the dimensions, all the variables that actually need to go into this rather than trying to trim everything down and make the the equation as short as possible. So there's, yeah, there's like a, there's an economy, There's an economy involved in in the way that we model things, and um, SFI President David Krakauer and I spoke to this recently on Episode 34 of Complexity Podcast, talking about. I love how you have like
3: an archive in your head of. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's uh, you know, Scott, it's all like if I just think back to our episodes, it's all a blur to me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But in this in this latest uh, episode that we just put out, we talk about the way that this means that. Um, mathematical models of the world are not values neutral because they encode Mm. our blind spots and in those blind spots live beings that suffer by being, uh, rendered invisible, you know, uh, economic externalities, uh, marginalized populations, you know, there, there's a way that the, you know, to put this down at on the, on the street level, there are, um, Ways that the epidemiological models that we've been using to to fight uh, covid nineteen are racist because they're not handling the structural inequalities that exist at the neighborhood level and they're right. they're assuming you know that we can talk about the transmissibility of this disease this is uh, Chris Moore at sFI has written uh, some really great pieces on this that they're not talking about the differences in the network structure between say downtown. Manhattan and the Navajo reservation, you know, or like the way that people of different socioeconomic uh, circumstances are incapable of social distancing, you know, uh, because they have to go in, or, you know, like p- essential employees and so on have to go to work. Uh, you know, there, there was a, the to draw from US news last week, the LAPD and NYPD were arresting people that were out after curfew because they were essential workers and they were like delivery drivers were getting arrested for breaking the law. And so, you know, how do we, how do we resolve this in our regulations, um, in a way that balances the tension between like, we can't make these blanket sweeping regulations that pin people underneath them and crush them to death.
3: You know, there's this kind of violence committed by the average, right? The kind of, you know whether it is you know here in london so you know transmissions rates that are not is you know well it's trending below one so we're going to open up but you know that is you know the right evaluation maybe for neighborhoods that are expressions of the average and for neighborhoods that you know where it's above one it's just it's just adding fuel to the fire right um, and and yet i suppose then then we kind of get back to this question of you know i suppose so I guess maybe one of the questions is like, what what level of complexity can people cope with before it overwhelms them? And then you kind of have these coping strategies of, you know, simplifying away to some basic principle, um, because you know, if you know, the I guess the the virtue of the average is it gives you kind of one number upon which you then make a decision one decision and you you say okay based on this there is this policy everyone do that right everyone stay at home i mean when you think about it it's it's kind of you know the worst decision to say okay, everybody stay at home everything just shuts down because it's basically conceding that we know nothing we have we have no granular information And if we have it, we have no capacity to act on it. And so we're just going to have to pretend that we know nothing. And if we knew nothing, then the thing to do is just everybody stop. And I suppose the the ideal...
2: Sorry, go ahead. Sweden dealt with this really differently, right? I mean, it's not as though they didn't say all the same stuff that everyone was saying, but they kind of said, be careful, maintain distance, do these things. But they didn't shut everything down, right? And they kind of were working on a kind of herd immunity model, which I, I mean, I don't know if that was wise or not, but that is interesting. That that's a very different, and also the levels of social trust in Sweden, like all of Scandinavia, are way higher than they are in the UK or the United States, right? So I wonder how that impacts things. So when you look at like the lower social trust countries, like Brazil is like seventeen percent, right, where the quotient is. The Scandinavian countries tend to be high, like oh, like in the high sixties, almost seventy. The UK and the and United States tend to be like in the thirties. Um, so I wonder how much just like with that like. With this, the lower social trust you have, right, the harder it is to make things function. Like they've done studies in Italy, which, you know, there are certainly has a reputation for kind of um, government corruption. And yet there are individual townships that are way more efficient and run in healthier ways than, than as healthy as anything in the UK or the United States. And a lot of the people attribute it to high social trust. And so I wonder how like you deal with a pandemic when there's just no social trust, and especially like in the United States. It's it's a whole complete um, partisan pandemic experience. I had a guy on Give and Take, recently, a psych, research psychologist, he said that blue versus red pandemic, it is like that, this research psychologist showed, until like red state people get the virus or know someone gets the virus. And then their perspective fairly changes. But until then, you have this sort of, um, you know, the, the, the blue state kind of folks tend to trust the government and think that we're doing the right response and saving lives and red state folks think, tend to think we're demolishing the society by ruining the economy. And it's just interesting that, that, that like the social trust factors and things like that just seem to really work against any kind of uh, complex, nuanced, organic framework that, like, Michael, you're talking about.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that speaks to some of the social science that's been coming out of SFI. Mirta um, Galasic, in particular, who was on episode nine of Complexity – <laughs> there you go, Chris.
3: Um, Myr- I, I, I'm, I, I'm keeping a score. I'm giving you points every time you do that. You're at you're at five. That's pretty good, man.
1: It's only 34 episodes so far. It's easy with Future Fossils podcast. There's 145, and sometimes I, I lose my place. But um, the uh, you know Mirta her her work is really interesting. You know, she came out of uh, Croatia as Croatia was falling apart. She grew up in in a nation that was in the process of of you know falling to pieces. And so she became really interested in in why that kind of thing happens. and and you know how the kind of uh, uh, crises of trust and legitimacy that you're talking about, Scott, even occur in the first place. And um a lot some of her work that we discuss in that episode is about the again, it's about the economics of uh, the tension between weighing the, these these choices that we make uh, that hold in the balance between these two different scales. So, you know, one is your local community, your peer groups, your, your, you know, your local support networks, your family, your coworkers, workers um, And this is the basis of uh, our, you know, what they call politically motivated cognition, um, where sometimes it's better for you to agree with the people that you depend on on a daily basis than it is for you to be right. Uh, you know, so this was a huge piece of Trump's election victory was that um a lot of people mirta found were going to vote Hillary until like the day before the election and then they decided that the social cost of making a, a a decision based on what they thought the best value you know the best strategy for the country would be um was outweighed by the the cost it would incur for them personally to disagree with their friends neighbors and and colleagues and so you know this is a huge piece of of why we are suffering such rampant polarization and uh, disinformation right now, because um I mean, aside from the fact that it's it, you know confirmation bias and it's just economically expedient in the short term to believe the facts that already suit your established worldview, um that's you know really this the sort of uh politically motivated bias is confirmation bias, but it's at the social level where it's it's easier for you to fall in with the herd than it is for you to stick your neck out and and point out the emperor has no clothes, right? Um and so yeah, again, it's 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 tricky and one of the things that we uh that I've been thinking a lot about lately is uh to your point about, you know, you said um you know, they they're, they don't believe it, they think it's a conspiracy or whatever until one of their friends gets sick and that's the, that's the point at which the global scale sort of involves into or erupts into the local scale again you know and and so um there's uh, episode 29 of complexity where david Krakauer and i talk about um you know how to think about uh disruptions to uh, an adaptive landscape of strategies that are are created by this you know like um You know, stock market crashes and so on, uh, mass extinctions are great examples where um, suddenly a a, you know uh, the global impinges on the local or the cosmic impinges on the terrestrial. You know, you think about like the the meteor at the end of the Cretaceous period, and it's like oh, suddenly your strategy has to account for the very very small but nonetheless non-zero likelihood that a, a, a celestial event is going to disrupt the entire food web that you're a part of and that you're not going to be able to lean on again, this extremely efficient but highly specialized strategy of being a pollinator that, you know, visits only one particular species of plant mm. or, you know, being this enormous, uh, you know, dinosaur that, that relies on this very delicate balance of, of, uh, food web relationships. And so in those moments of disruption, um, it pays to be a generalist. It pays to keep your options open again to, to the, the piece of the, the the article that I wrote that you, that you quoted earlier, Scott. Um, and the cost of gen- being a generalist, um, means that you don't get to scale. You don't, you don't get to scale in the same way. Uh, but that you're more resilient to those kinds of disturbances. So I don't know. There's a lot, there's a lot, that I unpacked there and just like sort of threw out on the floor, but yeah, I'll leave it there.
3: You you fit right at home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't hear you, Scott. So I had my
2: mic muted. Okay. I had my mic muted. I was on Zoom good you know, protocols. You know where you, you mute your mic. Um, John, I was thinking when you were saying that John uh, about the kind of groupthink. You know, Jonathan hates work in the right. The righteous mind, um, oh, sort yeah. of moral psychologist. He talks about how morality binds. But it blinds, right? So, so you have these moral kind of cultures that are necessary to for human evolution, right? It's it helps you uh, early on. Like our tribalism really helps us, right? Like it it allows us to 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 bind together, to have to form social you know collectives and and to you know have you know better food re- resources, defense things like that. But it also blinds, right? And so it's it often you know b- by necessity. And and again that that's I, I take that as like not a I take him there as being um descriptive, not prescriptive. He, he doesn't think it's a bad thing in the blinds necessarily, because you have to, you know, cho- you know, when you choose X, you, you have to kinda of not choose Y, right? I mean there there's a sense in which this is normal. but you do have to be open to the fact that you're gonna have blind spots, right? And that's, you know, I think that's the kind of the key thing.
1: Totally. So I guess- good science is good science is predicated on the the notion that your model of the world is provisional and temporary and will be superseded eventually. You know, so there's really there's a point at which I think a uh, kind of spiritual humility touches rigorous empiricism because, you know, that you're, you know, y- there are all of these sort of metabolic or economic factors governing the decisions that we make in terms of what to include or uh, exclude from our models. And so, you know, it, it, you're never going to arrive at a final answer. You're always going to find a bigger context or, a, you know, a, a finer grain at which to examine things.
3: Although, So interesting about that, because I feel like it's, you know, this is a good moment when um, how the lay citizen, let's say, looks at the expert, looks at the scientist it is really kind of coming into the foreground as, you know, OK, we, we relied upon experts in science to say we all have to completely stop what we were doing and adopt a completely different routine and pattern for our, our daily lives. And now there is this kind of stumbling process of figuring out, okay, how do we, and, and you know, every community, society is struggling with this, how do we kind of balance sort of what the epidemiologists, what the health science is saying with uh, economic considerations, social considerations, political considerations. And I think what's really showing is, I guess, I just got a bunch of things in my head. Uh, so listen to that. One is that I, I kind of believe that scientists believe that you know I'm, I'm holding this model provisionally i don't think that anyone else in in kind of society believes that that's what scientists believe i think that what wh- and, and whether we're projecting that on the science the science is, is you know also holding that i think that there is this kind of um this this sense that you know science has a form of truth which is a form of kind of like keeper of the special knowledge the special fire and and when they speak then we all need to be silent to it. And then what happens is kind of a a question of social trust, as Scott said. Like if we kind of like, yeah, you know, like Canadians, right, in our constitution, peace, order, good government. We're kind of predisposed to listen to the authorities and say, okay, I guess that's what we must do. And so there's a kind of sense of we'll we'll obey that because they're right. But there's a very, there's little nuance, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, I feel in in how the public relates to the science um i think that there's there's a kind of in incapacity to to take that that confession of provisionality that the scientist is offering and actually work with it in some way and say right okay you've got you know and that science is really important and it's saving lives right now there are also these value questions now we need to make some sober trade-offs about you know how much is a human life worth, you know, the economic system upon which, you know, if we shut it all down, then there's a there 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 are all sorts of welfare and health costs of, of not having that model. Look at all of the uh, systemic injustice and the way that, you know, all of these consequences are distributed highly unevenly. Like there's all of this stuff to talk about. Um, but I think we so we need in this moment to be able to have really mature conversations kind of like around the campfire where we all have an important voice to bring. I just don't think that we've kind of grown up to be able to, 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 to sort of find one another to, to actually have that conversation. And so what we're left with my hypothesis is you get like these, these kind of clumsy absolutes, right? Either, okay, let's just do what the scientists tell us and and we'll just listen. Or the scientists have been totally politicized. So they're just another political actor and let's just have the usual political argument that we've that that we've been having and it feels like what we actually need is somewhere in the middle where yeah the science is really important but there are now these other value conversations that we need to have and and that's not what they're specialized at you know we've we've got other technologies for kind of emerging those other things is any anything they're, i'm they're, saying making
2: sense yeah they're part of the conversation the scientists are part of the conversation and i think that that's the problem i think what we're seeing in the us is that it it, it almost de- did seem to get politicized right we were talking about this with harry Pierce where uh, who we've had on the show recently, where you know, where, where you kind of, it, it is an awkward thing, right? Because the science, because it just seems like the government says we're going to listen to scientists, right? And that we're going to tell them what to do. But then again, you do risk then politicizing the scientists, right? When you we don't have them as part of a deliberative democratic dialogue, and they just kind of because then what happens when like people are just like pissed off at, at the, like you know, I, I just see that in America, people are so pissed off. That the model, when the models up, are or seem to be off or something like that, right? And they, they people just freak out and get so angry because, well, I thought you were the experts. You know, well, no, that's not how this thing. This is not, you know, this is not. There's messiness here, right?
3: Just, to add a bit of mess to this topic now. <laughs> so, uh, I just saw the tweet a couple of days ago. So, Doug Ford, who's the premier of Ontario, um, has. Uh, you know, as part of the reopening, so they kind of reopened places of worship and stuff like that. And and when media interrogates, so, you know, why we made this policy decision? Um, he says, well, you know, we, we consulted with the experts. And then the follow up question was, wh- which experts? Who are the experts? And the government didn't want to reveal who the experts were. And I think that's quite dangerous. If If the experts who, you know, are being invoked to set public policy are mm-hmm. hidden from the public, Whether whether that was kind of a good faith thing or not, I think that then again, it it politicizes the experts because then you're just you're using the power of that label to shut some people up and do what you think you need to do. And 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 I just think that we I just don't think that we know. I I don't know if I've ever seen it where like the, the 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 scientist and the citizen sit around a table as in some way equals And, 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 and contribute together to the, okay, so what do we do with, you know, the perspective that we both bring to this? Have I seen that? I don't know if I've seen that.
1: It's a wicked problem. Um, and (laughs) there's so much in there, uh, because like one, one of the problems again has to do with what I was talking about, like the, you know, the segregation of, of social groups, uh, that happens without any kind of ill intent, um, because it just takes time to explain what, uh, you know, economists call a common prior, you know, like, you know, a mutually understood sort of basic, you know, an axiom upon which you can have the conversation that you need to have. And it, you know, it just takes time to try and relate your experience, your worldview, your history, your understanding to someone else. And there are plenty of examples where we don't have the luxury of that time. Um, episode seven of Complexity Podcast, uh, <laughs> Columbia, Columbia economist and SFI External Professor Rajiv Sethi, who just co-authored this fabulous book, uh, "Shadows of Doubt," on on stereotyping and, and cr- the criminal justice system and the way that that our our clustering of events for you know this is a subconscious thing that all of us do all the time. You sit down on the chair without testing to see if it will hold your weight because you've created a, a, a mental model mm. of chairs that chairs support you, you know, and so you just assume that they will. And that's a stereotype and that's okay because no chair comes, you know, most <laughs> most chairs do not come to harm um, when you, you make that assumption. Um, but it it makes a big difference if you uh, run into someone in a dark alley and you're making an assumption based on your exposure to stereotypes, because even if you don't think you're racist, the fact is that uh, all of us uh, have been shown to, you know, the, the, the work on implicit bias makes it clear that uh, we exhibit uh, an unconscious racial stereotype simply by being exposed to them, you know, and, and this is done because um, you don't have time to like, I mean, everybody, you know, a lot of a lot of implicit racists will say, well, hey, I've got that, you know, I, I've got that one black friend on my block. Uh, you know, he's cool. He's all right. Uh, and it's because it's the one guy that you've taken the time to get to know or that, you know, you've your your life circumstances have, have brought you into association with them in that way that you've had the luxury to to sit down and get to know them. And, you know, this creates uh, a problem when, you know, Rajiv and I were talking about this on on that show this is a serious problem um, with trust in terms of not just uh, racial relations, but all relationships that occur over the Internet. Um, this is why hate speech is such a big problem on social media, I think, um, because we don't have uh, we're not living next door to these people. We're not engaged with them uh in a, in a you know a high bandwidth, long duration, get to know each other, eating eating together kind of way. And mm-hmm. so we're basing our judgments of one another on these these uh, snap uh, stereotyped, you know, you' you're looking at somebody's profile picture at like fifty pixels across and deciding whether or not they're an idiot, you know um, or the last thing they said with no knowledge of their life experience and where that statement is coming from. And, you know, to to loop this back to uh, a more like personal territory, um, Future Fossils podcast, I just talked with the producers, uh, Monica Long Ross and Clayton Brown, of an extraordinary and very disturbing and surreal documentary called We Believe in Dinosaurs. This is episode 144. Um, and they're and they're talking about, uh, you know, the underlying issue, like you were just mentioning, Chris, of trust in scientific Experts in America, specifically, although this is uh, admittedly a worldwide problem, but it's especially acute in the United States. Um, that uh, there is this theme park called the Ark Encounter in Kentucky. That's a young Earth creationist Amazing. theme park. Let's and, go!
3: Let's all yeah. go. And,
2: that's run by. That's run by Ken Ham.
1: Right. Right. Ken Ham famous australian-american i'm just you know that (laughs) oh yeah he debated bill bill nye the science guy yeah yeah and and had his ass handed to him i must say but it was you know and they bring that they bring that debate up in in the future fossils episode that i'm talking about because they say that um you know the the moderator of that debate asked them both uh would you change your mind about the theory of evolution where you presented sufficient evidence to the contrary and bill nye said of course i would and ken ham said no i would not mm-hmm. and that the, you know the difference is that there's something there's something in the the mind of a fundamentalist and i don't mean that in terms of just like a specific religious belief that's you know fundamentalism comes in all kinds of it's kind of context content independent it comes in all all flavors you can be a science fundamentalist scientism um and uh fundamentalism is uh the inability to hold open that boundary uh i mean to hold open that question uh because it's it's easier to congeal on an answer again you know uh it's you know premature but maybe you'll never get challenged in a way that that in a meaningful way in the course of your life so you know the thing with with uh young earth creationism that uh, monica brought up in that conversation is that they're obsessed with having all of the answers, that it's a huge relief to have all of the answers because it's hard work to keep the question open. And, um, and that's, you know, frankly, why I think, uh, you know, historically science emerged out of the, you know, it, like uh, privileged class of people, people like Isaac Newton that had the time and the luxury to spend investigating these things that, you know, had the time to think about these things. And, um, you know, the faster we crank the, the treadmill of society, the more uh, polarized we're going to get because the, le- the, le- the less time we are affording people to, like, consider mm. things, to, to think about questions. things, to ask these questions.
3: So yeah. this is interesting. I, I, I'm going to have to go in a few minutes, but um, you guys go all night. Um, but I feel like this conversation has has sparked so many i guess like contemplations in my mind about you know this social experiment that well you've all been part of it now um of you know bringing together diverse people uh around a kind of common campfire around a common question and just you know for want of a better word seeing what happens and 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 you know and as we explore just you know like what is going on in our heads how, how how different and in so many ways and levels um, our worlds can be from one another. Um, but, but also the kind of the need for it, which, which I feel like you've just articulated, Michael. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of left, I suppose that, I, I mean, I wonder, you know, there, so so we live in we live in so many such different worlds. Right? I mean some of the things if I kind of review in my head the last hour, we've talked about blind spots, we've talked about, you know, sort of different levels of granularity that we engage with the world. We 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 talked about kind of the epistemic communities that we're a part of. Um and and also how how time poor we are to even develop an awareness of that, let alone then kind of do the next step to kind of explore like, Oh, okay. If if I've got these blind spots, if I'm only seeing a piece, what are the other pieces and what, what might they be? And, and I feel like on the one hand, it the, the need for it and the opportunity for it is so obvious. And on the other hand, the reasons it will fail <laughs> are, you know, are so clear. Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess, I guess that then becomes the question. Or, or one of my big questions around, you know, what, what, what should we expect in terms of, you know, how we inter, inter be, right. How we kind of interoperate one with the other. um, And, and it seems like, well, you know, talk about social scientists, this is what's going to keep us social scientists employed forever because, you know, pick, pick, pick your, pick your slice of reality. I'm a political scientist. You know, the last few months I've been thinking so much. I've been on, on the front lines of working so much of just sort of watching, you know, the, the political relationships between China and other countries just sort of dissolve, right? Uh, you know, paying attention to what my friends in China are saying, what they're consuming in media about, you know, what is going on in the US, what is going on in their own countries, and and just the the walls of understanding and and perspective that are just being strengthened and strengthened and strengthened through exactly what's happening right now. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of, I I sort of wonder almost like what, what, what should the objective be, you know, in terms of how, how humanity coexists? I mean, you know, in, in, in the naivete of youth kind of thought of democracy as sort of the project to stitch it all together, right? We're all going to kind of come to a similar way of looking at ourselves, looking at the world we live in, looking at, this is a, this is a sensible way of kind of you know mediating questions and conflicts and we're all going to get there eventually right and so we'll we'll kind of interbe that way um and it feels like you know that that is such a in 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 the totality of the complexity of the present and how we're all making sense of it just you know it's 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 another dimension of reality that we don't we don't live in at the moment but but you know i i don't know now i'm just rambling but I wonder, I wonder where we go from here. I, I certainly, you know, I think, you know, Scott, Michael, you're both in the, in the United States. And I suppose the, the first step is just, you know, as a, as a, as a political project in the United States, it seems like that's a, a pretty big open question, you know, as a kind of an outsider. And I was, I was commenting to my partner the other day. I guess, you know, as a kid Canadian, Growing up, you know, consuming mainly American media and and sort of Hollywood movies. You know, the Americans are the good guys and girls, right? You're the, you're the beacon. Um, we all want to be like, you did a good
1: job pushing that. (laughs) Yeah. yeah,
3: Yeah. Right. It kind of, I just sort of grew up with that. And it's so, it's so, um, it's so convoluted now. I actually don't know where to look, even just globally for the, the, you know, what are we aspiring toward? Right? Who's, well, I mean, I would say Denmark, but
1: they just, they just demolished, uh, Christiana. Right. So like, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's a really good, I mean, and to me, that's the thing is like, you know, as an American, I'm thinking about this in terms of, um, you know, how do we, ref- how do, what kind of radical reform of policing is required? You know, uh, for me, this has always been the question about oversight and at what level is oversight performed? Because, Obviously, you know, you know, if you're if you're a cop and you're going to intervene on a domestic dispute, you need to have some sort of. It it would help immensely if you had some understanding of the family that you're getting involved in, you know. And so, police that are handling, you know, a, a you know, a massive jurisdiction, are are going to regard the people in that dispute as numbers. They're not going to be able to address it with the sensitivity it probably requires. You know, or, you know, I spent many years working on the the festival circuit where um, it was of the utmost importance that if someone were having a hard time, you know, you think about this in terms of uh, psychedelic harm reduction, if someone's having a hard time on uh, an illicit substance, probably the worst thing you can do is call the police or call an ambulance, you know, unless it's absolutely required, you know, because that, may, that could mean, you know, enormous costs incurred to that individual, um, in some cases like horrible, horrible, uh, you know, malpractice outcomes as well as, as, uh, legal entanglements for both them and for the event itself. Um, you know, it can, it can literally kill the party. And so, you know, when you think about policing, it's this question of, um, to bring it back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this call, like, are there enough levels at which oversight and modular decision-making are being built into the system, or are we just like slapping one blanket policy down on all of these specific cases? And in most cases, the guy just needs a glass of water and maybe a back rub. You know, he does not need to be put in an ambulance or a police car. You know,
3: I I came to the I came to the exact same place as I was listening to you. As I kind of think back five minutes ago to the question I was struggling with, I'm kind of I was trying to make this leap from the individual to the world. And I actually think that like the, if, if one is looking for like kind of what's the answer, what does one, what does one start with? I think it is the, the kind of restoration of this middle layer where at least that's, that becomes a kind of social milieu where, where we can, you know, empty our pockets of this stuff and kind of put it on the table together and sort of talk around it. And, and, and as I think about it, you know, it's not just that, you know, the, kind of the neighborhood associations are gone. I mean, you know, our mediascape, social media, it's, it, it, is, it is kind of the mass and the individual. Um, there, are, there are so few public spaces that are just kind of for the public to encounter one another and, and figure, kind of navigate one another. That, 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 that's a sort of rich complexity of, of the us um, and if we, if we had that, then I think we, we would have more of a sense of a place to bring, to bring these doubts and these, and these questions. And, 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 and it does occur to me as I think about, you know, in, in that framework of, you know, are we missing a middle layer that that would also be where, you know, the scientist and the layperson would find one another and you've got a mm-hmm. like big bureaucracy saying, okay, this is what it has to be. And me, the individual, okay, I guess I'm stuck at home, right? And and they're kind of missing that that kind of middle layer where we sit down together and talk about the the implications of that, the consequences of that, you know, the maybe the reality that we are such a sparse community that we probably, you know, can suffer to be more relaxed about our distancing earlier. Or we are such a compressed community and we've got so many vulnerable people. But that despite you doing that, we can't. And that that level of 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 granularity to some extent. You know maybe the maybe the best way to navigate it is simply to embody it
1: i there's one more analogy I'd like to throw into this because yeah, you've find, got
3: room for one more podcast yeah, just I'm one sure more that's
1: it a- <laughs> it's not I haven't talked about this on a podcast yet to my knowledge, but I think about this in terms of you know as a musician, um I think about this in terms of there are kind of three different contexts you know you can call them uh ca- complicated, complex, and chaotic. You know, that's like the sort of the, the formal way of, of talking about these. But it's like at one scale, you have a symphony orchestra where every musician is looking at the conductor, you know, which might be like the president or the pope or or the, you know, the the um, the uh, attorney general or whatever. Um, and everyone's reading off the, sh- the same sheet music. And that's fine when the environment is changing slowly enough that the sheet music is not going to change, right? Um, and you can orchestrate that's, that's the economy of scale where everyone can efficiently collaborate at, 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 a, at a, in a large body in that way. Um, but if the times, if the spatio temporal scale of the musical collaboration shrinks, um, and things pick up, you you have a jazz ensemble at that middle layer where you're only paying attention to the the four other people in your band, you know, and you're reading each other's cues and, you know you're able to improvise together at that way and maybe you're working off of you know a set of chord changes like a jet you know like a standard that you you know you have the basic structure um but you're able to like build you know move and you're able to flock in a way that a, a symphony orchestra cannot flock and then if you're a solo saxophonist just riffing on a street corner then you can indulge in free jazz you can just throw the dice that's chaos you know but you can't bring that totally stochastic uh, strategy into a jazz ensemble, unless everyone backs out, like mm-hmm. sits down and lets you step forward and just goof. And that's even and that strategy doesn't plug into a symphony orchestra in the same way. And so it's about like, again, it's about, uh, how fast are things changing? You know, if you're trying to play the music of this moment, um, and you're trying to play along with it in a way that is consonant, meaning that, you know, there's a low, uh, there's a low energy investment in uh, you know you know you're not it's low friction right you're not you're not playing the wrong notes then um if you're just in the midst of a completely turbulent mass of stuff you can do whatever you you know you th- throw the dice but you're not going to be able to cohere you're not going to be able to row together with other people doing that and then you know likewise uh, the the I feel like the fluidity of that uh, that mesoscopic middle layer that you're you're referencing a moment ago, Chris, um, the jazz ensemble, I think that that's kind of where we are in a lot of ways now. There are but the, again, there's like there are scales at which each of us is playing in a symphony, is playing in a jazz ensemble, and is just you know, uh, goofy doing an air, air, air guitar solo in your bedroom at any given time. And it's like, it's important that you know where you are with respect to each of those. Uh, if, if you're not going to, you know, if you don't want to be like bumped out of your club, as it were. <laughs> well, friends, we've said it all. I,
2: okay. I think,
3: that, I think, I think it's all or nothing for the three. It's of all you. or nothing <laughs> today. Right. It's all or nothing yeah. today. Uh, well, Michael, thanks
2: so much for being on the podcast. This is uh, episode, what? thirty three. Thirty-three, Chris.
3: Is it? I have no idea. What numbers <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I have, your numbers uh, are your responsibility, man.
2: I, yeah, no. I one of my podcasts is like. I have two podcasts that have more than two hundred episodes, but this one oof. is thirty-three. I think. Yeah, it's been a slug. It's a marathon. It's not. a sprint. It's not, it's it's not, not a it's sprint. Not a it's contest.
3: Sprint. Everyone, just,
2: it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a marathon. Thanks, my I've friends, and we'll have you back, Michael. Thanks again for being on the podcast.
3: Thanks a lot.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Thanks for listening to the Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.